This episode of Roadcast is brought to you directly by the founders of Rogue Monkey. We're focused on bringing you the latest trends in technology and innovation and connecting bright, aspiring entrepreneurs of the future to the wealth of industry experts that can help inspire you to turn your business ideas into a reality today. Hey everyone, and welcome to the next episode of Roadcast with me, Jay Ugra. Today, we're super lucky to be joined by payments executive Suresh Bagiani. Hey, Suresh, how you doing? Hey, Jay, how are you? Great to be on. I'm doing good, thank you. I'm doing good. How about yourself? Yeah, I mean, look, the, it, it's a parallel universe, uh, what's happened in the last year, but otherwise, you know, everything is good. Thank you. So Suresh is an experienced senior executive with a proven track record of leading rapid growth companies. He has expertise in developing products and services on behalf of both financial technology as well as FCA regulated companies. Suresh has represented the fintech sector in the UK government on a number of trade missions to Mexico, Canada and China. And he was also involved in a historic delegation with the Right Honourable Lord Mayor of London to the Southern Hemisphere. He has hosted meetings with senior ministers, including the current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. So Suresh, that sounds super exciting and I'm really, really curious. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about what you do? And, and more importantly, you know, what is your why? Why do you do what you do? So, look, I mean, I, I've been in the payment industry for, you know, almost 15 years. Um, and I guess, I, I guess you, you, you kind of hit it on the head, which is what's, what's the driving force? Um, what I find is that working in fintech, you know, people want to make money. Ultimately, that's a byproduct of what they want to do. People want to change the world. People want to provide new things. People want to push the boundaries. And I guess my career in payment started on, on the product side. And I was very fortunate to work with, you know, with teams that were really engaged in pushing the boundaries for what's possible. So the real thing I, that really drove me was making a difference. Now, I, I know everybody says that, but I'm talking about pushing boundaries for things that have never been done before. Um, and I, th- I think FinTech epitomizes that. But, you know, even in the early days, I'm talking about in 2011, you know, um, we talk about Apple Watch, but, you know, I worked at a company called Calixa, where in 2011, we, we launched the contactless watch. So, you know, it was something that worked on the underground. It worked everywhere. You know, it wasn't a smart watch. It was actually a watch where you put a chip in there and you can make contactless payments. So that was early doors. And even things such as, you know, an iPhone 3, we did a contactless device for an iPhone 3 that was driven by an app. And that's kind of, unbelievable it's like you open an app on an iphone 3 and say i want to pay contactless and it works so i think that these are things that people never thought were possible um and i've been really fortunate working with so many companies you know whether it's like revolut from inception monzo starling you know i, I was working with with monzo and and the team not when they were called mondo it was when they were called focus financial that was their actual name when the first guys kind of set up so I've been really fortunate working with companies that are pushing the boundaries. And I think that's the driving force. It's not about, you know, I think you could go into a payments job that's very secure and the money is substantial. Um, but often those organizations rarely push the boundaries. They tend to do what they've always done because it works and it makes them money. Whereas there are other companies that do want to do things that haven't been done before and, it, and make things for the better. And I think that it brings new ideas to the, to, to the future and in ways that we haven't seen before. I think 
you know, fintech is, is an example of where so much change has happened and it's to do with the mindset, the approach and the willingness to start everything from scratch, from learnings. So, sir, so I'm really curious to ask you this, right? So, so why is it important to build an effective team around you? Like, isn't it possible to achieve similar outcomes, if not better outcomes by doing everything yourself? Like, you know, I'm a bit of a, a, bit of a control freak myself and, and sometimes I feel like knowing everything that's going on uh, gives me comfort, right? And I think there's a, a lot of people that are in similar positions. So what's your view on that? Look, I've worked in organizations that have grown rapidly, kind of being, you know, the fourth person in a company that went on to 150, you know, within five years or, or kind of number one to, you know, almost 100 staff. And I've worked in organizations that are FTSE companies that have 4,000 employees. So I've seen all ends of the spectrum. Now, what I'll say to you is that um, when it comes to building an effective team, there are, you know, it, it, you almost have an IBM situation, which is, you know, nobody gets fired for hiring IBM. What I mean by that is you build a team of people that have the same experience that you have or they have experience in the industry and they've done what they've done for many, many years. And what you often get is that the ideas that are there are often not challenging what's been done before. You, you know, put it in simplistic terms. Why do we do that? We do that because that's the way we've always done it. Well, why can't we do it differently? Oh, we can't because that's the way we do it. And, and there is a danger that when someone's been in industry for a very, very long time, they can gain that mindset. So, you know, I, I'm going to go back to fintech, which is they challenge that mindset. I'll give you an example. When a bank wants to generally launch a product or a service, they do massive amounts of research and analysis, potentially for you know, one year before they start the process of building it. And then the product will go to market, you know, from the idea to going live from two to three years from that date. What the fintechs did was they turned it on its head. They said, we've got an idea. We want to get it to the people, you know, start using the product in a matter of weeks or months. And then what we want to do is as they start using it, we want to analyze how they're using it, get the feedback and actually uh, build it along the way. Um, I've seen this image actually, where it, it talks about how do banks build cars and how do fintechs build cars. And you, you may have seen it. And all it was, was that, you know, for, for a bank, it's basically says we're planning to build a car. And then three years later, they've got a car. And what you had with the fintechs was they first had a skateboard and then they had a scooter with handlebars. Then they had a bicycle then they had a motorbike, then they had a car. Um, so it was a very, very different approach. It was actually kind of, you know, innovating in a very agile way. And often it comes to mindset. It's about doing things that haven't been done before. So um, do not get me wrong when I say that experience, you know, I, I, I'm saying that it's about a balance. If you want a team to be effective, you need to have a certain percentage of people that have experience in what they, they do, but they have the right mindset you know, and the right mindset means that they want to challenge what's been done today. Then you actually have another percentage of people that are potentially new to the sector. They don't know about the area and, and they will ask questions and maybe they're silly questions. Well, why do we do that? Should we do it that way? What about if we did it this way? And the people of experience should be able to say, never thought about that. We should look at it as opposed to, no, that's the way we've done it. Cause that's the way we've always done it. So, you know, effective teams are about people that can 
challenge each other in a constructive way without anybody getting, you know, throwing their toys out the pram and ultimately having the skill sets that you don't have. Now, you said you like to be quite in control and, and, and own most of the process because it gives you that comfort. What I will say to you is as the organization grows, as you grow, you will not be able to do everything yourself to the standard that you want to have. And, and, and you know, it's normal. You, you cannot be the master of everything. So when it comes to certain companies, there's so many complexities. Like in the payment space, there is so much, you know, you know the compliance side, the regulatory side, the technology side, the user experience side. You know, there is the sales side, there's the commercial side, there's the relationship side. And I, I, I have never met a person on earth that can do all of it effectively. There's people that can dabble in it um, and their strengths lie in one aspect. You know, th th there's a reason why some, sometimes people say, you know, we've got the best technology people ever, but we never get them in front of a client, you know, because their mind is wired in a specific way and that's the way they operate. So I think that, you know, you can't be the master of all and actually having a team that you trust that's operating 100% on the areas that are responsible are far more effective than an individual trying to do 100% in everything. It's just not scalable and you will ultimately burn out. Got it. No, I love what you said about um, almost, you know, part of your team's almost complementing certain elements, almost recognizing gaps within yourself that you can then fill by bringing other people who are, often in my case and, and maybe in yours is, you know, often a lot smarter than we are in, in terms of kind of capability. Some of the best people that I've ever learned from or the bosses I've worked from have strangely come from a military background, right? So, you know, two guys that came from military background and they always, you know, there was two things that were instilled on me. One was you always hire people that are better than you. Always, always. Even if your job is at risk, you always hire people that are better than you. And then the second thing you do, um, and I, I don't know if you've heard of the term, is, is that you have to gain respect of your team. And one of the things that, um, you know, so th this guy I used to work, you know, the, uh, he was my boss. He was a commander of the nuclear submarines in the UK. So you don't get more kind of, wow. let's say, um, you know, scary than that. Because these, these are guys in a submarine, you know, over that red button that they could press. And, yeah. and he said, you know, you hire people that are better than you. And then you gain respect as the leader. You gain respect. You don't impose that you are the boss. And what, they, what he said is they would do is they would get all the food together and the whole company, sorry, the whole, the whole kind of submarine, all of the staff would be eating at the same time. Mm. And what he said was in the start, all the food is there. And basically the, the captain or the commander, he eats last. So what happens is that the team just all kind of scoff all the food and they'll there'll be nothing there, right? Because there's nothing left for the, uh, for the commander. So he says, what happens is that they realize that actually he's going to eat last. And the moment you start to see, um, you know, kind of the subordinates putting food aside for you saying, I'll keep that aside for the commander, put that aside, put that aside. So as soon as you start seeing that, you've gained their respect. So it was a combination of, of, of one, hiring people that are better than you, and then gaining their respect but as i the key word is not respect it's gaining because you know the worst thing you do is you hire somebody that's better than you and you don't trust them and they don't trust you because that's a recipe for disaster and that's why sometimes people don't want to hire people better than them because they're worried that they will outshine them 
But if the trust is there, it will just fly. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I really love what you just said about the, um, the, the piece around hiring people that are better than you and, and, and often respect being a kind of earned commodity. I, I, I've seen a lot of people in really senior positions of power that I, I think have maybe not necessarily failed. I think failed is a strong word, but maybe not gone as far as they possibly can just because they've assumed that by virtue of the position that they're in, that the respect is kind of a, is a done deal. But actually, you know, I like what you've just said a lot. On the flip side, you know, we, we've done a lot of research at Rogue Monkey and, and we've discovered that in the context of startups, this is, now we've found a number of cases where founders often struggle with commitment issues from other co-founders in the team, often leaving a few weeks or months after they've begun and, and been hired into the team. So what, what tips do you have uh, for, for some of our listeners to, to ensure that a team benefits from, I guess, like long-term success and keeps everyone happy and motivated enough to actually want to stick around for the, for the launch of the product? Look, some of the most successful companies you and I know have founders that have fallen out and gone waywards. You know, whether you talk about Facebook, whether you talk about, you know, Apple, they all have these stories. Now, I think there's two factors. One is that you often find that communication at the start is very good when it comes to the actual company. So let's say you and I are founders and we decide to start something. Um, I think our communication would, would, be, would be amazing. It would be, well, I'm going to do this, you go and do that, and we're talking on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. So in that angle, the communication is great. However, the areas that we really should communicate on is to ask you and say, what, are, what is it you want to get out of this company? What is it you want to do? What's your aim? And why are you doing this? And also, why am I doing this? Because I'm saying that sometimes founders start working together, but they don't actually know what each other's expectations are. Mm. So that's almost the foundations of it. Like, I may be doing this saying, look, I just want this as a lifestyle business. And you might be saying, I want to float this on the stock market, right? Mm. Yeah. And then, and then you've got a mismatch of, of kind of expectations. And, you know, I'm upset with you. You're upset with me because you're, you're making me work so hard. And I'm thinking, I just want this as a lifestyle. I just want to get something. You're like, I want to float this company. And literally, you're going to get a disjoint. So firstly, is the communication is great when it comes to the business, but actually not great when it comes to understanding each other's expectations and why they're doing this. So that's number one. Number two is as the company grows and the more successful it is, what you find is that founders talk less to each other. You know, they almost, they almost create, you know, a, a divide. It's almost like they talk less because they've got their own teams. They're managing one side of the business and someone else is managing the other side of the business. And it all comes down to one thing, and that's communication. So founders fall out when communication isn't right. And... Um, or expectation is wrong. And it's still linked to communication because you're not saying, you know, why are you doing this? What do you want out of it? Or even, are you happy doing this role? Like, you know, let's say, you know, I, I spoke to you and I said that I've worked with some great people. And what I've been fortunate is I've often taken a lot of credit for working with great people because I've always been the mouthpiece. You know, they're the actual ones doing all the really clever stuff. And, but you know, they, they don't feel comfortable speaking about it. So I've been the mouthpiece for it and often got the glory for it, but every opportunity I can, I try to shine the light on the people that really did it. So I think that sometimes, you know, if I had put one of the tech guys and said, okay, I want you to talk to uh, people. I want you to talk on stage. 
I think he would leave because he'd be like, I hate this. I can't do this. So it, it all just comes down to communication in every aspect, whether it's, it's expectations, whether it's, you know, it's clear cut. And, and as the company uh, grows, you know, I, I've seen divisions occur where they really shouldn't. And it, if they spent more and more time just face to face with each other, not on the phone, but face to face with each other, just them two without, um, you know, these, these advisors, because sometimes what you get is a division because you get people whispering in each other's ears, but the founders were the guys that started the company. They were there when nobody else was there. They were there when the glory wasn't there. They were there when nobody was interested in the business and they shouldn't forget that they have that in common. And some of the people that are giving them advice or so-called advice, they weren't there when there was nothing there. You know, they were attracted as the company became successful. So I think the founders should always realize that they, they both came from very little and they've got that as unity. And as long as they are communicating on a regular basis, you know, it will thrive and expectations are maintained. I love that. So it almost sounds as if, you know, what you're saying is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, one of the biggest failures or opportunity areas for founders is understanding people's drivers and understanding each other's reasons for kind of existing in that space in the first place. And often that comes down to, the same answer as what makes you happy every day. Um, and if you can align those expectations together, then, then you know, uh, I, I guess that's a, a recipe for good things, right? And, and you're absolutely spot on, but people assume, like I'll give you an example, right? I was trying to hire somebody um, from a senior capacity in a marketing role uh, from MasterCard. And, you know, she was amazing. She was, um, you know, she, she would talk on stage and do all of these things. And I said, I want her for this company because I actually think she can do great things and I love the way that she's able to talk on stage and, and, and you know, very open and frank and have these real interesting, engaging conversations. And she said, but I hate that. I said, how can you hate it? You're great at it. Like, <laughs> I've seen you talk and you're amazing. She's like, I know, but I absolutely hate it. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't want to do it. Yeah. Now, if I had not had that communication, I just would not have known. I would have just thought, I've seen her speak. She's amazing. She's great. She's great for the company and assumed, which I did, that this is what she, she likes doing, but actually she doesn't. Interesting. Interesting. So uh, we're talking about kind of capabilities now and skill sets, which I think is a, a really interesting conversation, especially when you talk about uh, the technology space. Um, and often, you know, some of the conversations that I have with, with other technical founders in the industry is, you know, just how difficult it can be sometimes to find the right skill sets within your immediate network. So when I talk about that, I'm talking about your first degree or secondary degree connections on, on LinkedIn, for example. You know, how, how okay, let's, let's put, it, put the question to you, right? How would you personally go about sort of finding the best fit for, for these kind of more nuanced and almost technical positions within, say, your team? Look, filling technical positions are always generally challenging. And the reason being is that, you know, often the people that are the mastermind behind success stories of technology platforms are rarely seen. They're very much behind the scenes. So it's not like you will meet them at events because they don't go to these type of things. So hiring technology people is probably the toughest thing to do. Um, I, I mean, you know, I can just speak from my own personal experience that recommendation is, 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 is parallel. Now, what I would say is that you often come across companies that you're really impressed with and you love what they've done. Now, if you know people within those companies or you know people that know of the company and say, well, who's their technology people that they've got there? 
I mean, these are opportunities to headhunt. But what I'm saying is that when it comes to technology, I do try to hire on recommendation. Um, and the reason is that there's some things that you just can't afford to make mistakes on. So I'll give you an example. You could hire somebody that looks great on CV um, and they've worked at all the right companies, but you actually realize that all the things you want them to do, they didn't do. And then you've got the headache of almost, you know, they potentially will deliver what you want, but it may not be to the standard you want. It, it, you know, it may not be cutting edge. It's just another technology platform. So I'm not saying they would do that. I'm saying there's a risk of that. So I think recommendations is key. And also the person that's recommending them, like, you know, people sometimes say, oh, you should talk to this person. They're great in technology. And I say, but you know, you don't know how to use an app on your phone, right? So how would you know if they're a good, you know, they're a good technology provider? So I would still talk to them, but you almost have to take the recommendation with a pinch of salt, you know? Now that's if you're doing a startup and doing something small. If you are doing something big, you know, and, and this is gonna sound very interesting because traditionally I haven't been a big fan of headhunters, but you know what? If you have something specific that what you find is that the really good headhunters, they are talking to people throughout their career. It doesn't just say, they don't just talk to them when they're looking, they're constantly in communication with them. Mm. So they know, so when you sit there and say, I'm looking for a tech guy that can do this language coding, manage a team of 20, uh, build UX, do this, do that. They would say, actually, I know someone, they're not looking, but I'll have a chat with them. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that when it comes to companies that are scaling up, that are looking for that, headhunters are invaluable. Interesting. A lot of what we're saying now is, is really fascinating and it's, it's based on capability, it's based on experience, which is great. And, and whilst all of those things are super important and you know, whether you're a big corporate firm or a startup, it's just one thing that's kind of missing in this conversation for me, which hopefully this question will try and try and address, which is about trust, right? So, you know, trust, I think, I'm sure you will agree, you and I have had a couple of conversations now. I think trust is a key component of, of any functional, high-performing team, right? And as a leader yourself, what, what sort of things, I guess, would you advise some of our listeners, um, you know, to try and build a two-way trusted relationship with their own teammates in the future? I think that you have companies where the management team are very effective, where the trust is just united. And what you will get is you will always get external factors or internal factors where there's an element of divide and conquer. So, you know, whether it's from, you know, private equity or VC, you know, where, where you know, they almost want to have their kind of preferred individuals in the exec team. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it sounds strange me even saying that because it wouldn't be in the interest of kind of, you know, investment funds to divide and conquer but it's not open. It's more like, you know, this can be our inside guy. This can be the guy that's telling us what's really going on type thing. So, and, and the moment that there is a crack in that unity, then that crack just gets bigger and bigger because it creates distrust. So as soon as you have something like, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, there's somebody that you've never met. And I tell you some really terrible things about that person. You've never met them. Um, you already have a perception of the person, even though you haven't met them. And often if you do meet that person and have a conversation with them, it would almost reinforce what I said, because I've already made you look at it in that way. So 
I don't know if it answers your question, but what I'm saying is that trust has to be there from the outset. The moment that somebody thinks they're trying to do someone over, like, you know, we've all been in situations where we've had staff that haven't been performing to the standard they should, right? And, you know, there's people that I know that would often, you know, say, oh, look, we've got a financial issue, you know, things aren't great, um, you know, we're going to have to let you go or something along those lines, right? Mm-hmm. I actually think that people respect you so much more if you're just honest with them, you know, just be straight and say, look, I know you haven't been performing. This, this is what's been happening today. Like, what, what can I do to help you? Because when you started, you were on it. Are there any problems or barriers that are there for you? And you do everything under your sun to remove those barriers and they still can't perform. And you say, look, it hasn't worked. We've tried everything. They would absolutely respect you for that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it comes back to the human touch. And I think that, you know, there's always so much smoke and mirrors like, oh, we had to let you go because of this and that. And people aren't stupid. People, you know, people are not stupid. I think, you know, I've worked with people that have joined companies I've worked with and left with them, left companies. And I would like to think that I've maintained friendships because I've always tried to be very honest and open, even with difficult conversations. So I think trust is paramount. And I think people respect you for that. Even if you have to do some horrible things, people value you if you are honest. Before we move on to the, the, the final question, Suresh, and, and just so you know, the final question every week is what we call question roulette. So it's, it tends to be a surprise question, slightly more challenging angle. Um, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to asking you this one today. So before we get to that point, um, uh, I've got one final question to ask you, which we ask all of our guests every week. Uh, which is what are your top five tips for any aspiring entrepreneurs? So firstly is um, people, there are people, so I I generally, I work in FinTech and people come to me and they say, we want to do this. We want to, you know, in the early days, I'd probably have a hundred people that would say, I want to do a Revolut. I want to copy Revolut. Um, And I would say, well, well, then you've got something identical to them but how does that differentiate? How does that make anything different? How has that improved anything? And the reason that Revolut was successful was that it saw a problem in the market and it solved the problem by creating this solution. You know, it saw that certain things were broken and the user experience wasn't there. So often you have people wanting to do something. I want to work in FinTech. What do you want to do? What's the reason? They don't know. It's really important that when you look at what you want to do or start a company, there are two ways to be successful. One is to find a problem and see if you can solve it based on what's in the market. If you have a problem and you can't solve it, then it means that there is an opportunity for you to launch something that could solve that problem. Number two is that there are products out there that I consider bridging technologies. What does bridging technologies mean? It means that they are there in a very temporary way before the real deal real comes. So I'll give you some examples. You know, you could argue that, you know, Napster was probably bridging. You know, it was, it was almost, you can download music. Let, let's forget the fact that it was, you know, you didn't pay for it. But the fact that you could stream music and download music and, you know, that was before iTunes was there. So it was almost like if you looked at Napster, you'd say, well, Napster's already there. That's the end of it. Actually, there was flaws in the model because of, of the way it operated. 
And there was an opportunity there because something else was coming. You know, um, you know, you have computers now where the hard disk isn't spectacular because they have micro SD slots that can store massive amounts of, of, of data that you don't need a, 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 you know, a massive hard drive on your computer anymore. Um, laptops, desktops, right? So you can sit there and say, well, desktops, you know, is desktops bridging technology, you know, before it gets to the laptop? Is a laptop bridging technology before it gets to the phone? So there are things that are actually in pass and it's very easy to think, well, that's just the way it is. You know, how many things were there before Facebook? You know, you know, there was, uh, there was MySpace, right? You know, there's been so many things that have been there before. Um, and, and when I say bridging, look at it, look at the flaws and see what is the final destination? Where can you take it? Um, you know, uh, MP3 players were there way before iPods were there. So I think sometimes people think they need a brand new idea. It's not always about a brand new idea. It's about having an idea that you see in the market and say, actually, that's flawed, that's temporary. You know, there's going to be something else that's going to be coming out of it. So it's the, make sure that the business you're planning to do, there is a market for, and it's in a growth sector. You know, there's no point doing something in, in a sector where all the roles are going to be replaced by AI or the likes, because unless you are bringing an AI offering to it, you're literally selling to a shrinking market. So it's like your market is just shrinking away and the market audience becomes smaller and smaller. So make sure you're launching products and services to a market that's growing where there's a demand for it. Um, the other thing is that be aware that when you're starting up a company, it's the most lonely place you can be. And people often say, I've got the loan, uh, I've got the investment, um, I've started talking to some people that are going to work with me and help me on it. But often they're not psychologically prepared for the impact it will have on them. And it's funny because, you know, we go to the gym and we work out and all of these things. But, you know, it, it's funny. My, 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 my son, he plays uh, cricket. He's, he's eight and ten. And often I feel like they're losing the game psychologically, not in skill. Um, and he doesn't really understand it. But I'm saying to him, look, the moment that that pad hit you somewhere where it hurt, the ball hit you where it hurt you. Um, that sounds wrong, but it was like on his thigh. Um, you know, you were scared of the ball and were worried that you were going to get hit again. And actually that plays on your mindset. So often founders or, or, or startups are unaware how difficult it can be. And it's a lonely place. Now, if you identify how your journey will be, you'll be prepared for it. And what you have in the start is you'll have massive peaks and massive troughs. When you have peaks, you think, are oh, you on top of the world? You're going to take over the universe. And at the troughs, you want to quit. Now know that these peaks and troughs become less extreme the longer you run the business. So in the early days, you will have massive you know, ups and massive downs. And, and by the way, they don't go away as the business carries on. It's just that the range becomes smaller. And just know that every time you have a trough, you're more likely to throw the towel in. So if you carry on, you're going to have another peak. So the psychology is often not, you know, you're not there to be prepared. And ideally, you don't want to do it alone. If you could do it with somebody, it makes a massive difference because when you are down, they'll pick you up and vice versa. So I think that, you know, the psychology and the mindset is, is, is a challenge and it's a lonely place. And, you know, like there's times when I'm not sure I could have done it, you know, 
Um, and the other one is to know your own strengths and weaknesses. You know, like, like know there's things that will, you will actually um, thrive in because you love it and you enjoy it. Like if you weren't getting paid for your business, you would still do that. That's a driving force. If you're doing it because you have to do it, um, it's, it's, it's flawed because you're, you're doing something that is something you really don't enjoy. So it goes totally against the grain of everything that you really enjoy or don't enjoy. You know, there's people that can look at spreadsheets day in, day out and go into all the detail. I realized very early on that <coughs> I despise it. I hate it. You know, I can, I, I don't find figures interesting unless I can add value to them or meaning to them, but know your strengths and weaknesses. And, and also I think people are often afraid to show about their weaknesses or talk about their weaknesses because it's seen a flaw in them as an individual. And I think that's sometimes a mistake. There is, you know, there is nothing wrong with being open and honest because it lays the foundations for you to succeed in the future. Um, and then the final point is just know when you should get money and know when you shouldn't get money. And what I mean by that is external funding. You know, there are pros and cons to getting external funding. And the key thing is to make sure you get it at the right time. If you get it at the wrong time, it will kill the business and it will kill everything that you built up for. So, you know, it's almost the whole journey from starting on your own to raising the money and saying, oh, great, all these people want to invest. And it's like, should you raise a lot? Should you raise a little? What's the impact? What's the considerations? And that's where it's really adv advisable at, when you get to that stage to have an advisory board or a non-exec directors that can help you in that. And actually, people forget that these guys have done it before you can pick their brains and actually compared to what you get for what you give in terms of their fees or even small equity, it's worth its weight in gold. It's like saying, do you want 1% of a million pound company, sorry, 100% of a million pound company or 10% of a billion company? You know, it's, it's that kind of mindset. And people always feel like they don't want to do that. They don't want to, but you know, they should. And just the final point, I think I said that before, but I don't even know if I've said five is, Never stop learning. The moment you think you know it all, you're destined to fail. So the market is always moving. The industry is always moving, no matter what sector you're in. The moment you think you know it all, that's when you've actually on a downward spiral. So do not stop learning. Do not think you know it all. And don't ever think you've made it. Because if you always feel like you're, on, you're pushing to always improve and always learn, you will always thrive and be at the top of your game. So the, the final question I'm going to ask you is that slightly more challenging question that I mentioned before. Um, and I really want to ask you this. I feel really compelled to know the answer, actually. So have you ever faced a specific situation in the past where you were first forced to work with a, a colleague or a teammate who you perhaps didn't get on with so well? Um, but because they were really good at their job, uh, you had to, to kind of see the bigger picture of what it was that they were contributing towards. Um, you know, tell me about that experience, if, if there is one. Look, I think, I think it's, very, um, it's very easy to blur an individual um, and be like, I get on with them, I don't get on with them, I respect them, I don't respect them. What you often find is the people you work with are very knowledgeable and very, you know, they have great experience, expertise, and they're in that role for what they do. And the reason maybe you don't get on with them is a character. You don't get on with their character. You don't get on with them as a person. But from a role perspective, their knowledge and expertise 
you know, you're not really questioning that. Now, I've been in situations where, you know, when you work with something like product or even on the, on the commercial side of the business, you will always, you know, kind of, you know, be pushed with kind of challenges that you get from others. It's always one against the other. You know, things like compliance, you, you know, you're not in a situation where you say, you know what, we're just going to sign up everyone. We don't care where they come from. Let's just do it. And, and it's like great from a sales perspective, great from a revenue perspective, but totally against the regulations. And, and you, you're, you're counterbalancing what you can do and can't do. Now, when it comes to payments, it's very strict. It's black and white. There's no kind of areas of gray. You can and can't do this. Now, what I found, and one of the skills I've learned on the job is, is, is sometimes there are people that are quite, um, I wouldn't say insecure about their job, but I'm saying that they, they, don't wanna, they don't want someone to encroach in their space. And if you understand that, it can free you. So what I, what I mean by that is, let's say there's another department and I'm dictating to them, you should do this, you should do that. And you're, you're imposing on them an area that you don't really know about. You've, you've got your thoughts and ideas on it, but you're encroaching in their space. Now, if you turn it on its head and they were doing that to you, you would probably feel the same, maybe not to their face, but you would feel like, why are they dictating to me what I should be doing in my area when I know what I'm doing? So what I realize is that often people are not horrible people, but one is they want to protect what they want to do. And they don't want people to make decisions in their area when that's their area of expertise. So the most valuable skill that I've had and learned, and I've learned that, you know, in the last few years, is to have an idea that's a great idea that you plant it on someone so that it becomes their idea. And you know what? If you can master that one skill and nothing else working in teams, then you will absolutely fly, right? What do you get? You gain what you wanted out of it. Two is you will achieve what you want. The, the only thing you're giving away is you're not getting the glory to say, it was my idea. But does it really matter when you want to get the solution? You planted the seed in, in the person's brain and you want some change in their area and they've taken that seed, embraced the idea, made it their own and they're actually implementing it and you're getting what you want. They are happy because they feel like they're empowered to do it. You are happy because you got the outcome. But there are people that it's like, oh, that was my idea. I told him how to do that. And if that's your driving force, then you individually as a person are flawed. Because why are you doing it? Are you doing it to better the company or just to make yourself look good? And there's nothing wrong with doing it to make yourself look good, but identify it. Because, you know, that's a whole different can of worms if you're doing everything to, you know, impress your bosses and to at the expense of others. Because it comes mm -hmm. back to what we spoke about, which was trust. How do you work as a team if you're just doing it to make yourself look good at the expense of other people around you to make them look inferior? So it comes back to trust. It's almost intertwined. It's like, a Lego, it's like a Lego wall where each one of these blocks all go into play and without one, the whole thing collapses. I absolutely love what you just said, Suresh. Thank you so much. And, and thank you so much for joining us today uh, as well. I think on behalf of both myself, the Rogue Monkey team, and, and also, uh, you know, some of our listeners as well. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people will, will really benefit from the conversation. So thank you so much, Suresh. Thank you. Look, I appreciate you having me on board and I hope it's valuable to some of your listeners. As always, thank you very much to our guest on today's show.
If you want to find out more about Disruptive Innovation or Rogue Monkey, you can follow us on Instagram via RogueMonkeyHQ or search for our page on LinkedIn. Until then, be bold, be brave, be a rogue monkey.